You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. We are this morning in week six of a seven-week series entitled Back to the Book. Back to the Book. And this series is born out of the conviction that every big step forward spiritually starts by turning back to the book. The next step that God wants to, us to take and, and make in our spiritual life, the thing that He wants to do in us to grow us and mature us spiritually, to make us more like Jesus, He's going to do through His Word. He's going to do it through His book. Well, the last couple of weeks we've been looking and working out of a particular passage in 2 Timothy 3. So let me encourage you to turn there again. This morning will be our last week in that passage, 2 Timothy chapter Three. We're going to read just a couple words, at, or a couple verses rather, at the end of the chapter. Second Timothy chapter three. I'm going to read verses sixteen and seventeen. Second Timothy three sixteen. This is God's word. All Scripture is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let's pray and ask God for help now. Father, we, we need your help. As we go to this word that was inspired by your spirit, Lord, I ask that that same spirit would now speak the truth of it to us. Father, we need minds to understand but even more so, we need hearts to embrace and believe and wills to obey. Fathers, we'll see this morning, your word, your book is powerful. I pray that it would be powerful right now in our hearts, in minds, and lives, in church. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said famously that the book has power. That hasn't been said famously. That's the title of my sermon. It's been said famously that the pen is mightier than the sword. The pen is mightier than the sword. It's more influential, more enduring, more effective. You know, with a sword, you can compel somebody to act, but the saying suggests the pen can actually change people's minds. The sword can compel action, but the pen can change minds. But, but God's word, we see, is more powerful still. God's word not only compels action and changes minds, it does something miraculous, something you and I don't have the power to do. The Word of God changes hearts. 
it doesn't simply change what we think. It actually can change what we value and what we love. God's Word is the most powerful force in the universe. Think back to the very beginning of the Bible, back to when there was no universe. And everything that came to be, came to be how? He spoke it. God said, let there be, and there was. God's creative power isn't simply artistic, or he's not simply a good designer. He didn't, he didn't simply look and say, well, what building blocks, what materials can I use to make a universe full of all the wonderful things we see today? No, when there was nothing, when there were no building blocks, there were no pieces, when there was nothing, he simply spoke existence out of non-existence. God's word is, is the most powerful force in the universe. And not just as it relates to physical reality, but spiritual reality as well. That same creative word God uses to change hearts and change lives. You remember the passage in 2 Corinthians 4 where Paul says, he says, in their case, people who are perishing apart from God, he says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God, of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So, so Satan, God's enemy, our enemy, is blinding eyes so that, that the glory and beauty of Christ can't be seen. But, two verses later for God who said let light shine out of darkness just like at the very beginning has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ Paul saying just like at the beginning when there was only darkness and nothing God said let there be light God speaks a word of power when the gospel is proclaimed into the minds and hearts of people who don't believe, who are lost and dead in their sins. And God, by his own powerful word, says, let there be light. And, and, and then the lights come on. And what, what we couldn't see before on our own, the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ in the gospel becomes visible to us by the word of God's power. God does. It is power for salvation. Similarly, in our passage right here, we look back just a couple verses to verse 14. Actually, verse 15, he says, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says the sacred writings, it's the book, God's book, it's the Bible that has the power to open your eyes and so that Jesus who before seemed to us not worthy of our time, not worthy of our attention, certainly not worthy of giving ourselves entirely to Him, submitting to Him as Lord and God. All of a sudden, the lights come on by the powerful Word of God, and He creates new life, new hearts in those who believe. And Jesus and the Gospel all of a sudden seem beautiful and worthy of belief and worthy of acceptance and Jesus worthy of following. We see Jesus as the Son of God come in human flesh, living the, the sinless and holy life we were supposed to live, but haven't. And then dying for us, dying the, the death we deserve to die 
because of our sinfulness and rebellion against God. And then God raised him again to new life so that every person, any person who turns to him and says, I believe that, I embrace that, I ask for forgiveness, I ask for grace, I give myself, God, to you, receives salvation, receives eternal life. And Paul says here, it's the book, it's the sacred writings that make us wise for that. It's God's word that he uses to open our minds and hearts and eyes and to bring salvation. But this morning as we look further in this passage, as we look at our verses in verses 16 and 17, we see that God's powerful word doesn't just make, create new spiritual life and salvation. God's word is also what God uses to empower and grow us in Christian living. So verses 16 and 17, Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable. We saw it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. And now this morning, we see that God's Word is profitable to us once we've come to God through faith in Christ. It's profitable to us as we try to live for God. It's profitable, we see this morning, for training in righteousness. I want to make a three-part argument this morning. Here's the first one. There is a right way to live. There is a right way to live. You know, people have been considering this question for a very long time. It's a, the question of, of ethics. How should we live? What's the right way to live? Well, in Paul's own day, when this letter to Timothy was being written, there were all sorts of ideas and all sorts of philosophies going around about the right way to live. I give you just a few examples. Some of these you've probably heard of. There was a group of people called the Epicureans. We get that Epicurean adjective even in English today. The Epicureans said, the right way to live is to avoid pain and seek pleasure. That's the right way to live. Stay away from the hard stuff. Embrace the stuff that's fun. Well, that's one approach. By contrast, the Stoics, and we see some revival of Stoicism even in the modern day, the Stoics say, conversely, that the right way to live is just to take whatever fate gives you. Life's often going to be hard, and you just got to deal with it with the right attitude and the right spirit. So their ethic was learning to, to want what one gets rather than being focused on getting what one wants. The cynics thought that the right way to live was a very ascetic lifestyle, spartan and bare, right? Live in accord with nature, free from possessions. The Jews, of course, were spread throughout the Roman Empire. They said the right way to live is according to the Old Testament law. Lots of ideas about the right way to live in Paul's day. Modern ethics, though, for us are, are often very different. If we were to ask today, what school of thought do you ascribe to? How do you identify? How do people around us identify the right way to live? And we find that most people embrace today, it seems, that the way to discover the right way to live is to look inside of yourself. I'm going to identify and create my own right way to live. I have to be authentic. I have to be true to me. And so I look inside myself for the right way to live because I must be authentic. That feels and sounds so right to our modern ears that to even question the idea seems heretical. What else would I do but define for myself the right way to live? 
And that's not entirely new. They were philosophers. Uh, ancient Greek, uh, Protagoras, an ancient Greek philosopher, said he rejected the old-fashioned view. This is five centuries before Jesus. He already considered it an old-fashioned view that the gods were in charge. And he said famously that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. Today we might say, I am the measure of all things. Well, the biblical worldview, of course, is very different. Fundamentally different than both the ancient and the modern ethics. The ancient and modern ideas of the right way to live. The biblical worldview insists that God is the measure of all things. God himself is the measure of all things. See, biblical ethics, biblical ideas about the right way to live are rooted in the first place not in rules and not in philosophies, but are rooted in a person, God himself. God himself defines the right way to live. There is a right way to live, and it's rooted in the character and commands of God. There's a right way to live, and it's rooted in the character and commands of God. If we look back just a chapter to chapter 2, verse 22, it says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. You see the contrast there. I want you to pursue righteousness, he says. So what do you have to flee? Youthful passions. What are youthful passions? The impulsive desire to pursue whatever it is I want. Solomon addresses this in Proverbs 14. He says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. There's a way that seems right to us. And the proverb says, that's not the way to go. You know, we have an enemy. We have an enemy of our souls who wants to destroy us. We say, well, what, what way of living would he want to convince us to take? Well, it, in one sense, it doesn't really matter to him as long as it's not God's way. So I'm going to go my way, and he'll say, I'm, I'm fine with that. That works, as long as it's not God's way. There is a right way to live. But you don't discover it by looking inside yourself. Because right living must be taught. Right living must be taught. Back here in 3.16. Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness. Training in righteousness. It's not automatic. You don't, you don't download when you come to faith in Christ righteous living and then just click run. You're going to be trained. It takes time. This word for training, is, the word is paideia. It's closely related to the word for child or young servant. And that makes sense because children and servants need to be trained. They don't come knowing what to do. Our kids sometimes struggle. I'm sure yours don't. But our kids sometimes struggle to do things when and how we want them to do. So take, oh, I don't know, bedtime. I don't know if you've had the privilege of putting young kids to bed. It's miserable. It's miserable, right? How long should it take? I'm eager to go to bed every night. Like, I, I go through my bedtime routine quickly because I can't wait to get in bed. But they're exactly the opposite. Right? How long does it take to brush your teeth? They're, they're a little 
toothbrush, they're on a timer. They go, oh, but it takes forever. How long does it take to go to the bathroom? How long does it take to put? It takes a very, very long time. And it's very, very frustrating. And so what I want to do is blame them. What's wrong with you, kids, that it takes you a half hour to get ready for bed? What's wrong with you? But I, what am I blaming them for? For being kids? They're just doing what kids do, which is whatever they want to do, right? That's what kids do. I want to blame them, but they're just doing what they feel like doing. That's normal and natural because you have to train kids to do what they're supposed to do. They don't naturally do what they're supposed to do. They naturally do what they want to do. You have to train them to do what they're supposed to do. And normal and natural for sinners like me and you is to do whatever we feel like doing. We, we have to be trained in right living. That's not automatic. We've got to be trained in it. Right living has to be taught. We have to learn it. We have to learn the right way to live. We have to be corrected when we get off track, which, which we will. That's why this word for training here is often translated as discipline. Discipline. So, one well-known verse, Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline. It's the same word. It could be training and instruction of the Lord. So in spiritual things, right, fathers and mothers too, training and right living starts with you. Training and right living starts with you. I don't mean that it's only and entirely on your shoulders alone. I don't mean that every poor choice your children make is your fault. At least I hope that's not true. But your work's foundational. With children, parents bring them up in the training or discipline and instruction of the Lord. We'll think more about that next week. But what fathers do in the lives of their children is analogous to what God is doing in the lives of his people. You might keep a marker here and look over a couple pages to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 uses this word paideia, this word for training or discipline, a number of times. Hebrews chapter 12. Look in verse 3. It says, Consider him, Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, don't regard lightly the discipline, same word, of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines or trains the one he loves, chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline or training that you have to endure, for God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline or train? If you're left without discipline or training in, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined or trained us. We respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined or trained us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines, trains us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For all moments of discipline or training seem painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of what? Righteousness to those who've been trained by it. God is training and disciplining 
his children. He says, if you're not being trained or disciplined, you, you may not be his child. Because he disciplines the ones he loves. And the fruit of that is righteousness. A peaceful fruit, he says. That's the work God is doing in his children. He is training and teaching us to live in these ways. Well, how does that happen? How does he do that? Well, on one hand, we could say for sure that he does that through the example of others. You see that clearly as parents, right? To go back to parents and their children. Our kids learn so much from us, for good or bad, right? Even now, I'm 44 years old, there's lots of things that I'll do or say or something that I'll think, that's what my dad would do. That's what my dad would say. That's how my dad thinks. And as I get older, I can recognize more of those. Maybe you can do that in your own life as well. Example is incredibly important. If we look at the next chapter here in Hebrews 13, verse 7, he says, remember your leaders, a little further in the verse, consider the outcome of their way of life, imitate their faith. Remember your leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. So see how your leaders have lived and follow their example. But notice the little... Uh, clause I left out. Remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So he, he's painting this picture of leadership, which is people who are they're speaking God's word into the lives of God's people and then exampling it, modeling it to show how that plays out in life. Um, Timothy or Paul will do the same thing back in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I won't uh, make you turn there, but in 1 Timothy 4, he says, uh, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for youth, but set the believers an example. Set an example. Show them how to live. Practice these things, he goes on to say. Immerse yourselves in them so that all may see your progress. So example is in a huge and important part of how we train in righteousness, but the example is based and founded on the speaking of the Word of God. Because it's the Bible that teaches us how to live the right way. It's God's book that teaches us how to live the right way. There are people in your life that can help show you but not infallibly. Sometimes they'll do it right. Sometimes they'll make mistakes. It's true of all of us. But God's word infallibly shows us how to live. Paul says back in 2 Timothy 3, it's profitable, God's word is, for right living. And that's no surprise since the Bible's breathed out by God. It's his very word. But, but notice this. Paul's writing to Pastor Timothy in Ephesus, encouraging him and exhorting him in ministry. He reminds him that the Bible is God's word, that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And what we would assume Paul is saying to Timothy here is, use the Bible in ministry. We Use it, Timothy, because look how valuable it is. This will help your people. We would assume that that's what he's saying here. And Paul definitely believes that, but that's not what Paul's saying here. He'll say that in chapter 4, a few verses later, where he says, preach the word. What he's saying here is he's encouraging Pastor, Pastor Timothy to go back to the book himself. So the paragraph starts in verse 10. You, however, or verse 14, 
But as for you, continue in what you've learned and believe. He's saying to the minister of the Bible, let the Bible minister to you. Before he tells him to minister to the Bible to others. Let the Bible minister to you. It's profitable for all these things, Timothy. Not just for years, but for you. The Bible is profitable. Verse 17 makes that clear because it says that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's the Bible. It's God's book that moves us towards spiritual maturity. It's the Bible, God's book, that shows us how to live in the right way. And Timothy, who's pastoring a large and important church, needs to be reminded of this, not just for others, not just for his teaching ministry, but for his own heart. The minister of God's book needs to be ministered to by the book himself. That's not just true for pastors. It's not just true for formal or full-time Christian workers. We all need to let the Bible minister to us. Not passively, but actively, even aggressively. The Bible is profitable, not just for people we minister to, but for our own hearts and souls. So we need to go back regularly, consistently, earnestly to God's Word so that we might be matured in our faith and, and equipped for the ministries that God has placed us in. When it comes to right living, the Bible is both necessary and sufficient. It's necessary because we wouldn't know how to live without it. We just wouldn't know. We could guess. We might get it partly right, but we wouldn't know. It's necessary for right living, God's Word is. And it's sufficient because it's enough. God's Word is enough. It tells us what we need to know. We could say it this way. God's book tells us everything we need to know to do everything God wants us to do. God's book tells us everything we need to know to do everything God wants us to do. It is sufficient. It is enough. Consider, in fact, turn, if you would, Psalm chapter 1. We looked at this last week. It's our, kind of our memory verse passage for this month. But look back at Psalm 1 again. Last week, we considered the importance from this passage of meditating on God's Word, the blessing that it gives. Psalm 1, verse 3 says, He, the person who meditates on God's Word, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked, verse 4, not so. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. In this psalm, what's the difference? The righteous have built their lives on what? God's Word. They've put roots down deep into the soil of God's book. They've planted their lives there, and they prosper. It doesn't mean there's no pain ever. It doesn't mean there's never difficult seasons. It doesn't mean there's never harsh weather. But it means in the end, they bear fruit. They prosper there as they plant their lives in the soil of God's Word. To do this well, we need to know the book well. 
to do this well. We just have to know the book well. So, Psalm 119, a familiar verse, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. A number of years ago, um, probably 25 years ago now, I uh, went up to work at Camp Barakel one. It was like a Labor Day family camp weekend. And I went with a friend from church. And, and so we went up. We were working in the kitchen through the, the family camp weekend. And one night we went to chapel on the west side, and uh, we uh, decided that we were going to walk back to the east side, which is a trail through the woods. You can take a road that goes way around. We're going to take a trail through the woods that goes down a hill and around the lake and comes up the other side. And I'd spent the whole summer there. I mean, I'd spent, you know, 10 of the previous 12 weeks I'd been at camp. So I know this trail well. So we start off, and we don't get too far from the kind of the ambient light of the chapel coming out the windows. And it's like, it's, boy, it's awful dark out here. Really, it's one of these cloudy new moon kind of nights. And we get out there a ways on this trail, which also started off pretty wide. And uh, we got not real far, 100 yards up the trail, and you just couldn't see anything. You couldn't see anything. And so we're walking on the trail. The next thing I'm getting a branch in my face. I'm like, that's not. And we bumbled and stumbled our way around this trail because we just couldn't see anything. Would have been nice to have a light to see the way that we were supposed to go. That would have been really helpful. Well, this psalm says that God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. How so? How so? I mean, God's book doesn't answer lots of questions that you or I may have. Trying to decide, well, who should I marry? Well, the book's not going to tell you that. Um, Where should I live? Should I live in Michigan or should I move to Tennessee? The book's not going to answer that question for you. Right? Much as we'd like the book to tell us those kind of specific sorts of things. What career should I pursue when I leave for college? The book, the book doesn't answer those questions. So how is it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path when many of the questions we'd most like an answer to, it doesn't tell us? Well, one of the things it shows us is that we're often confused about what the most important questions actually are. Because the most pressing issue in our lives really isn't who should I marry Where should I live? What career should I pursue? Now, you can make smarter or dumber choices in all of those categories, right? You can make smarter or dumber choices, but but the truth is, you just need to use wisdom and trust that God will, will lead you. It's the things that we really need to know that are really important, that we don't feel are so important, that God's Word reveals to us who God is, what He's like, how we need to live to honor and please him. How we're supposed to care and love for one another, what that looks like life together in a church. The Bible speaks to all of those questions, the questions that are really important, the questions that we really need to get clear answers on. God's word tells us all of those things. The big issue in our lives and hearts, the issue that precedes all of those other questions, is knowing and loving God. So the Old Testament law had, as Old Testament scholars, uh, even in Jesus' day and before, had noted, had 613 commandments. They had a list, they'd counted them, they knew what it was. But Jesus summarizes 
virtually all of them with this. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Wait, there's 613 laws and commands. We spent a lot of time on these. Yeah, those are important. They're good. But, but the summary is you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the thing we most need to know. 2 Peter 1 says this, His, God's divine powers, granted to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and goodness. Our knowledge of God is what we need for all things that have to do with life and godliness. I've got questions about my life. Well, the, the biggest answers, the biggest issues, the biggest concerns are that we know God himself. And we know God through his word. How does this look in our lives? Well, it looks, of course, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, meditating on the Bible. We've talked about those the last few weeks. But I want to encourage you this morning toward one more thing, toward memorizing the scriptures, toward memorizing them. Another well-known verse, Psalm 119, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not do what? Sin against you. As I stored it up, or the King James, many of us memorize that, I've hidden your word in my heart. I've stored it up so that I might not sin against you. The presence of God's word, not just on the pages of a book that we hold in front of us, but, but stored up in our hearts, helps us live in the right way, in ways that honor and please God. That's one of the reasons we have a, we have a Wednesday night program for kids that is, we have lots of kids that come, we have a ton of volunteers, great leadership. They're doing a fantastic job. And if we had to pick one thing that that program is doing, it's teaching kids to store up God's Word in their heart. They, they hear at school, television, media generally, they hear all sorts of voices, all sorts of message, all sorts of values, all sorts of ideas about the right way to live. And we say, no, what? what we really need more than anything else is to understand God's way to live. We want the voice of God himself in his word to be not just accessible to them in a Bible that sits on their desk, but, but readily and always immediately accessible because they've hidden it in their heart. We spend a lot of time and money on Awana because it's just that important. It's just that important. Of course, it's not just kids. It's not just important for kids. It's important for me and you, too. Kids memorize quick and easy. Many of us look at it and go, ah, I don't memorize that well anymore. And that may be. That may be. But all of us could take the next step. More intentional, more purposeful. At whatever pace our minds in, uh, allow us to put God's Word, store it away in our hearts and lives. So we, we publish every month, we publish a uh, Learning Christ Together page. It's out in the lobby, and you can find it on our website as well. And it's, just, it's a daily scripture readings, Monday through Saturday every week, and then, then a memory verse. So for this month, October, uh, we finished reading through Luke, and we're starting into Corinthians, and uh, we're memorizing this psalm right here, Psalm 1, which stands at the head of the whole book of Psalms saying, hey, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the way of the wicked, but delights in the law of the Lord. So you could, you could start right here. You could start this afternoon. How, how do I bring God's word into my mind and heart and life? We just start, 
Start memorizing the psalm. Start storing it away so that God might speak to us through his word. Let me ask you as we finish this morning, how is God's word, how is God's word guiding you in living the right way? God's book tells us everything we need to know and do to do everything God wants us to do. God's book tells us everything we need to know to do everything God wants us to do. There's not some secret special knowledge out there that you've got to try to find. There's not some mysterious message that you have to go seeking after. There were early religions, false pseudo-Christian religions that taught this sort of thing, even in Paul's own day. Mm -mm. God's Word tells us everything we need to know to do everything God wants us to do. How is God's Word guiding you in living the right way? What, what steps are you taking? What disciplines or practices are you taking to store away God's Word in your heart, to bring it before your eyes and mind so that it is influencing and impacting your life? Listen, God's Word is the most powerful force in the universe. It is the most powerful force in the universe. It accomplishes God's purposes unfailingly. We deprive and impoverish ourselves when we don't keep it before us. We won't stumble into it. We must be purposeful and intentional. So let me ask you, how are you keeping God's word in front of you and within you every day? Father, I pray. Pray for myself. Lord, I I know how easy it is for me to get distracted, and, and I expect, I suspect that it's true for my brothers and sisters here that, that we hear a lot of other voices, and we're distracted by a lot of other messages and many other thoughts and ideas and issues that feel more pressing to us. But the most important thing we can do is listen to you and your word. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us not to be passive not to sit back and wait and just see if something happens to us by your word, but that we would purposefully, intentionally, Father, even aggressively, bring your word before us, that we would read it, study it, meditate on it, memorize and internalize it so that it would be with us, that it might be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Father, we... We want, however imperfectly, to live in the right way. Not because you save or accept us by our right living. You save and accept people who come to you in humble faith in your Son. But because we're grateful for your salvation, grateful for the way you've loved us and brought us into your family. And we, we want to respond to that in living the right way, first of all, because it honors you, but secondly, because it's just for our good. And so I pray we would see the goodness and beauty of living in line with your word. Father, I pray for Springview Community Church. I pray that we would be a people marked by, known for, a deep, radical commitment to you and your word. That your word would guide and govern everything we do. That we would be seeking you as a church and as individuals every day in your word. So that we might be like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf doesn't wither and whatever we do prospers for your glory and our joy. I pray this in Jesus' name.